Welcome back to the Net Zero Carbon Summit here at FreightWaves. I'm Alan Adler, the Detroit Bureau Chief. I am absolutely thrilled to to introduce our next guest. Uh, Dr. Larry Burns is a business advisor to more than 60 companies and uh, former head of vice president of, of research and development at General Motors, where he and I worked together at, at back in the day. And uh, Larry graciously agreed to join us for uh, a, a fireside chat. And I hope we can uh, have a really good time. Larry, welcome. And tell us a little more about what you've been doing in the uh, years since GM. Yeah, thank you very much, Alan. Um, it's great to be with you and see you again. Uh, I left General Motors in 2009 and embarked on what I call an encore career. Uh, during that period, I've been a professor of engineering practice at University of Michigan. I led a research program at Columbia University on sustainable mobility. But primarily what I've been doing is advising a wide range of companies, um, think on the order of about 60 since I left General Motors. These are typically retainer-based advisory roles, either with startups or with um, large uh, mature incumbent companies. And it's, it's been a lot of fun, primarily focused on the future of transportation, uh, electric vehicles, autonomous vehicles, connected vehicles, as well as the future of energy and the future of innovation and manufacturing. So I didn't think I'd have an encore career. I didn't plan on leaving GM, but I've had a wonderful time since 2009, working with a wide range of different clients. Well, and Larry, I stuck around a few years after you left, but we did work together for, uh, uh, I remember our trip to New York for some uh, visits that we did there uh, back in 2009, it was, I think. But uh, it's, it's great to catch up here. I, I am uh, especially mindful that uh, of something that you said a long time ago, you actually wrote a speech about it, and it was called The Power of And. And the reason I bring that up now the fact that I still remember it, is that as we talk about uh, so many companies that are involved both in battery electric uh, transportation, specifically trucking, as, as I cover it, and, and also hydrogen fuel cells, um, you were the first person I can remember who ever said, it's not an either or, it's an and. Why don't you tell us a little about that? Yeah, I, I really appreciate you remembering that, Alan, because I think it's a a principle that's extremely important, not just in the context of energy and hydrogen and electricity, but really in the way we live our lives. I've learned uh, from a business standpoint and a personal standpoint that frequently A and B uh, end up being better than A or B. And in the case of hydrogen and electricity, what was clear to me is both vehicles had electric motors, both vehicles had power electronics, and the only thing that differed was how you were storing energy on board, electrons in a battery and hydrogen and you know, typically a compressed type of a, of, of a device. And I think it makes a lot of sense for the world to have um, alternatives. Uh, hydrogen has its place, uh, being able to transfer energy much faster and store more energy on board vehicles. So things like over-the-road trucks may be uh, really good applications for hydrogen, uh, locomotives, uh, ships, maybe even planes. And certainly batteries have their place. But for the suppliers, there's a lot of synergy with all the other parts, as well as the architecting of the vehicle. You know, we showed the autonomy concept car uh, that GM pioneered in 2002, and it was based on the skateboard uh, platform. And the vision there was the energy would be stored in that skateboard, and that's what's happening now. So I really look at the future of energy as an integrated energy system. The word and and the word integrated go hand in hand. I think it's a future that's going to be based on both electrons and hydrogen. 
I think we're probably going to need nuclear in play given the scale of the transition we have to make away from fossil fuels. And I certainly see natural gas as one way to help us get off of coal, get off of oil, and make this transition. You can make electricity from hydrogen, hydrogen from electricity, and I think there's real robustness in having both of these in play in a, in a synergistic way. So that's what I call the power of and. Yeah, and, and, and I remember it really was a speech, if I'm not mistaken, that, that you had prepared. I don't know where you gave it, but I remember hearing about it and seeing it before, uh, before you delivered it. It's interesting that, uh, you know, when we, when we get at that, um, you know, you're not hearing quite as much anymore unless you are, you know, looking on some of the social media sites where, where people are a uh, favorite of one or the other. It's interesting, though, that, you know, Volkswagen, for example, which has invested heavily in solid state batteries with uh, QuantumScape and, and things like that, are, are saying that, you know, long term, you know, once you get to battery density, that, you know, maybe that really will be the answer. And, you know, hydrogen is sort of transitional. Um, but I think uh, we're also seeing that the long haul uh, application for hydrogen for over the road truck, as you said, is something that is beginning to catch on. Yeah. Alan, I think it's real important that we not think just in terms of the vehicle and the energy storage on board the vehicle. You have to think in terms of the energy infrastructure. Uh, one of the advantages of hydrogen is that if you properly line natural gas pipelines, you can transport hydrogen in those natural gas pipelines. And that's below the ground. That's not subject to power outages from storms. And um, you can transfer an awful lot of energy. And in fact, the electric grid in most modern nations is tired. It's, it's aged. It's going to require a lot of investment to keep that grid viable, especially as we pivot to electric vehicles. So maybe energy storage for hydrogen and battery electric vehicles get on a par for a wide range of applications. But we have to think about that infrastructure. We have to think about the sources of the renewable energy. Hydrogen can be made from a wide range of resources, as can electricity. So I, I, I think to rule out hydrogen and, and fuel cells as part of the world's energy solution is, is pretty short-sighted thinking. I think we need to have robust alternatives um, for a wide range of commercial applications and really, really pay attention to the capital that's going to be needed to have the infrastructure for producing and distributing the energy that we'll use in transportation. Once upon a time, and I'm going back many years, you had a, a map, I think, that showed a, a nationwide hydrogen infrastructure. For some reason, the number $24 billion comes to mind as being the amount that it would cost to build such an infrastructure. Now we're starting to see more of a route-based kind of thing for hydrogen where uh, those that are working on it, including GM, uh, you know, with Navistar, with J.B. Hunt, and with a, another company, uh, uh, H21, I, I'm not sure. It's a company that, that they're familiar with. I have a pilot program where I think they're looking at routes, you know, specific routes. Obviously, Nikola is looking at certain routes for hydrogen now, with uh, the first being kind of that, that uh, uh, Los Angeles area over to Phoenix, you know, uh, and, and actually has a couple Alpha trucks running with Budweiser. Uh, at this point. So do you think that we are, uh, just staying with hydrogen for a minute, do you think that we are looking at, at more of a route-based uh, kind of application than sort of creating or replicating the gasoline station infrastructure that we have? Well, I don't think we need to replicate the gasoline station infrastructure. I'm going by memory, and these numbers may be dated, but I think we have about 170,000 gasoline stations in the United States. It's interesting, whenever you pull by a gasoline station, most of the pumps aren't being used. 
but they've put all of that capacity in place because they don't want you to drive by even when they're busy. So I would say we have way more distribution of gasoline than we need, and that's not necessary for, for hydrogen. The number that you're recalling, we did a study where we looked at the major largest 100 cities in the United States, and we located hydrogen stations at a, an appropriate density. I think it was such that no one was more than two miles away from a station. Then we put one every 50 miles on the interstate system and added that up. And it was, um, again, I'm, I'm going by, by memory, but it was a much, much smaller number than 170,000. I think it was on the order of 12,000 sites that you needed to, to do that. I think what's real important about the interstate system, the 47,000 miles of the U.S. interstate system are not all created equally the same. They're not all used the same. And we, we know truck traffic goes along corridors, so you don't have to put it everywhere in order to get started. And if you get high utilization, especially when we get to autonomous vehicles, autonomous over-the-road trucks that can operate 24-7 on some of these corridors, then you can have a very focused hydrogen supply and you can tailor that infrastructure to um, the actual operations of, of the trucking fleets. So I don't think hydrogen infrastructure is a showstopper whatsoever. And I think it has some inherent advantages in, in how it can be distributed and stored, but it's an and. Please don't hear me as saying hydrogen is better than electricity. I think it's very, very synergistic and the market will sort out the right, the right place as we go forward. Sure. You know, since we're talking about, you know, we're talking on uh, on Earth Day here and we're we're certainly looking at sustainability, you just brought it up. And that is that there are great sustainability advantages uh, to these uh, uh, alternative fuels and, and also, you know, hydrogen. You brought up nuclear, which I think is interesting. We don't hear a lot about pink hydrogen right now, but it's out there. Right. I mean, when you talk about the colors of hydrogen, I believe I'm right that that pink is nuclear. Um, and, uh, you know, so it's very interesting that there are uh, a number of sustainable uh, benefits. I hope you can maybe talk about that a little bit. Well, yes. Yeah, so I mean, I think what everybody needs to appreciate is the scale of the transition off of fossil fuels. Um, SRI International did an important study of a few years back. It was called the cubic mile of oil. It was to try to help people visualize just how much oil oil is being used to support the lives of people around the world. That's a lot, a lot of oil. And yes, um, sustainable sources, renewable sources of energy are making headway, wind and solar. And you can see that as coal demand drops. But coal demand has also dropped because of uh, natural gas conquesting coal. So you're seeing both wind and solar and we have the other renewables, obviously, hydro and, uh, for example, geothermal. But you're seeing it make progress. But when you look at these graphs, Alan, there's an awful long way to go to get the world off of fossil fuels in total. And as I puzzle over that, I see that as a capital allocation um, challenge. We need capital to be deployed toward the renewables and not toward the perpetuation of the hydro hydrocarbon system. But that's asking an awful lot of the energy companies to manage that, to take down their capacity of one uh, asset and bring up the rest. I'm not taking sides here, but it is it is a, a formidable business challenge to manage that on the scale that we're talking about it. And I just don't see how we get fast solutions to climate change out there without keeping nuclear in play and somehow. I, I think we have to. The speed we, we have to move with urgency on climate change and to rule out 
ways to get off of carbon, um, uh, uh, given the urgency of climate change, I think I think is a, is not the right strategy. So yes, we can make hydrogen and electricity from nuclear, and um, in, in the right places with the right security strategies, right safety strategies, right waste management strategies, we can make headway with that. The good news is scientists and engineers haven't stopped working on nuclear. And uh, the systems and the robustness of those systems are, are certainly improved compared to where they were when the last round of nuclear capacity was put in place. But again, it's an and. I think we need to have all of these as part of the solution. Yeah, I, you know, it's funny. I, I hadn't thought as much about nuclear as, as you've mentioned, except that it is out there as an alternative, of course. Uh, but I do remember, uh, again, going back to uh, our working together, the, you know, Shell was involved a lot in hydrogen for a while, then stepped back, now seems to be stepping back in again, or at least considering it. Um, and uh, BP and some others have, have made some moves, uh, you know, that suggest that there's, uh, you know, alternatives to, to fossil fuels, and, and, and they're trying to you know, at least if not get into, appear to be into the game. And so I'm, I'm wondering where you're seeing the, the biggest, um, the, the biggest movers in the energy companies, if any, uh, you know, that are, that really seem to be involved in this in a, in a meaningful way. Yeah, I, I'm not tracking the individual companies closely. Um, and you have to be a little bit careful here because all of them are using the right rhetoric on sustainability and their advertising and brand building ca- campaigns. So what you really need to look at is who's deploying the capital differently. Um, certainly, uh, I'm, I'm seeing some of the utilities step up in, in a big way. Um, Next era, for example, and Florida Power and Light. In fact, I'm involved with some projects with Florida Power and Light at a new town called Babcock Ranch, where we've put in a massive amount of solar and uh, also storage, uh, for, for batteries-based storage for that. And so some of the utilities are are really uh, accepting that wind and solar have become competitive in certain locations under certain ways of applications with, with natural gas and certainly well, far beyond competitive with, um, with with coal. So those are really good signs. But again, it's it's the scale. I just think it's so important that we do a reality check here and understand the magnitude of the journey and understand the business realities of, of, of how we get there. The only thing I think that can scale to the magnitude that we have to is the market. And that's why I get very excited about what's going on with electric vehicles right now. I believe the auto OEMs are embracing electric vehicles, not just because they have uh, environmental concerns and they, they recognize the need to get on with that. It's just a better way to do a car. It has fewer parts. You can do the skateboard underlying it. You can put a portfolio of product in the marketplace. You know, Einstein said the best design is the simplest one that works. And I think the big companies that have pivoted now made major commitments to their future portfolio around electric vehicles are realizing this is just a more capital effective, engineering effective way to move forward with the auto industry. And consumers like electric vehicles. You get a lot of spaciousness, quiet ride, nice torque, acceleration, all of those things. So um, that's why it'll scale. It'll scale because consumers like it, and it'll scale because companies will figure out a way to make money off of it as they put their capital into these new solutions. But we, we, we need to not forget how big this challenge is and how urgent it is to get it solved. 
Well, I guess we have to come back to the, you know, the, the, the cliche is chicken and the egg, right? If you have the vehicles, you've got to have the infrastructure. And clearly on the trucking side, I think, you know, I've been writing about the fact that, you know, the infrastructure for, you know, uh, uh, DC charging and so forth is trailing a bit. There isn't enough of it to support even the the trucks that we're starting to see in the medium duty space. But but when you get into the class eight truck, which, you know, needs, uh, you know, more energy, uh, you know, on the battery side and, you know, needs to, to charge it, you know, whether it's 175 or 350 megawatt charging, um, you know, it, we need more of it. And you mentioned utilities are stepping up. Do you think we'll be able to equalize, equalize these two in, in, a, in a meaningful way? I think it's a great question. You know, you, you need a chicken, you need an egg, you also need a rooster. And um, I think the rooster and all of this is, is a good roadmap. Uh, we're not going to instantaneously stop building uh, diesel over-the-road trucks uh, and replace them all with electric over-the-road trucks. Uh, we're not going to do it like that. We're going to introduce modules of capacity, and the initial electric uh, over-the-road trucks can then be deployed on those use cases where they make the most sense. So that gives us a way to manage the introduction of the infrastructure to match up with the use case. So I think as we think that through and take advantage of, of how freight moves along these corridors, and many of the uh, uh, shippers and carriers have hub and spoke networks and other things, I think we can figure that out and you know use that 80-20 rule where we can get the biggest bang for the buck. But I, I just think that needs to be thought through carefully, that we're going to introduce modules of capacity for electric over-the-road trucks. They're going to have ranges and, and lives and capabilities that's going to marry up with the right corridors and those corridors are going to need recharging with the right companies who are making those commitments and 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 it should work um it's not that we have to flip everything immediately we we need these roadmaps and these use cases to be well understood and managed through that i'm sorry the technology is ready i don't think we're lacking the technology i'm amazed at the progress that's been made on batteries since, since i left gm and I'm also amazed on what's out there yet to be harvested on technology for batteries and for fuel cells. So we're just getting started. Uh, but uh, I don't think there's anything technologically that's preventing us from getting on with this. I think we just need to manage it well. One of the questions that I've asked some of the autonomous uh, trucking startups, uh, because most of them are working, all of them really, are working off of um, uh, uh, diesel-powered you know, tractors today, some of them are working to, you know, sort of build up tractors like uh, Too Simple and Navistar working together. And, you know, then there's some integration that, you know, Waymo is doing with some Freightliners and things like that. But the question I've asked, and I don't get a, a real clear answer, is when do these trucks, because California is going to make them the electric. I mean, it's going to have to be, you know, an electric uh, a powertrain. I suspect they all have it in their roadmap, if you will. Uh, to get there, but I don't see it yet. I think we're still seeing, uh, you know, this technology, uh, you know, integrated into a conventional or traditional truck. Do you see that ultimately being the direction? I, I, I think so. I think there's some real important aspects of torque management for over-the-road trucks. You know, they they go up and down hills and mountains, and, and we need to accelerate them uh, in concert with the autonomous driving system. So I, I, I believe the uh, power management aspects that we get from electric drive 
will enable us to do autonomous driving systems that are, are safer and more effective. And I'm, I'm glad you're bringing this up because, again, going back to the 47,000 miles of the interstate, there's a lot of telematics companies out there. In fact, I'm on the board of one called Wejo, collecting a lot of data, uh, uh, huge amounts of data up into the cloud. Wejo, for example, right now is collecting data from 16 million vehicles in the U.S. and Europe every three seconds, loading that up up into the cloud to, to give us a sense of what's going on out there on the roadway system. But for uh, for freight movement on, on the interstate, you can look at those 47,000 miles and you can find the 10% of those miles, route miles, um, that's the safest. You can measure safety by hard braking, by crashes, by evasive maneuvers, by obeying speed, whatever you want, metric. And then there's a 10% that's least safe. And that's an order of magnitude difference. So as you introduce autonomous vehicles, why not start on the safest 10%, match that up with where there's meaningful freight on the safest 10%, and then go from there. The other point I want to make is, and I'm very optimistic about the -the over-the-road trucks with autonomous because I'm I'm also advising a company called Neural Propulsion Systems, and we have demonstrated the ability to see a kilometer up the road in rain, snow, and fog. And it's that braking distance, that stopping distance, when you've got a big load, an 80,000-pound load, a trailer following a tractor, and you really want to be able to manage that braking in a way where you don't jackknife. All of those things are extremely important. But the technology is coming. Uh, we've got to pick those corridors that make the most sense for deploying the autonomous. And I do think there's going to be a synergy in the control of the drive, electric drive, that may have advantages over the, the diesel and mechanical drive systems um, as, it, as it relates to introducing autonomous vehicles. Let me let me end this, our conversation on this because we are almost out of time, and that is just a sort of a final thought on sustainability and where you see the greatest opportunity, uh, if there is a greatest opportunity right now. Oh, I, I think the greatest opportunity is being able to get the um, collective will to move forward. I think the technology exists, and I think the market opportunities are out there for the leading companies. But for whatever reason, um, our politicians like to politicize this. Collective will comes from common understanding. I I wrote my book, Autonomy, to help with that, to help people understand what's coming. I think we have a huge responsibility to make um, transportation sustainable, whether it's uh, uh, eliminating the 1.3 million lives a year that are lost on the world's roadways, whether it's getting off of oil, whether it's making better use of land, whether it's making uh, systems that are uh, provide more equitable transportation for everybody, huge opportunities out there. And we're at a point now where the technology is absolutely ready for, for, for these new opportunities to come forward. And we can't afford to get this political tearing us apart uh, uh, because there are winners and losers in this. We're all losers if we don't solve 1.3 million deaths a year on the world's roadways. And we're all losers if we don't get on with climate change. And the market has to be part of this solution. That's the thing that will scale it. And the good news is I think we have ways of getting much better ways of moving around and interacting economically and socially, goods movement, people movement going forward than we had the last century. So I'm, I'm optimistic about it and I'm hoping People will study it and understand it and see it not as a threat, but see it as a huge opportunity for our kids and our grandkids and, and people in the future. Well, that's a great way to end this. Larry, thank you again for joining us in the Net Zero Carbon Summit. Great to see you again and, and look forward to talking to you soon. 
Thank you, Alan.